We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. So usually for technology companies, especially venture-backed startups, you have two problems you have to solve. One is the better mousetrap, like, oh, with this new technology, I can solve that old problem much cheaper, much faster, much better in a different way than it was done before. But then there's this other problem, which is a business problem, um, which is, well, eventually the big companies will get the innovation as well. And so there's a little bit of a race in terms of distribution of how you can reach customers. And actually big companies do a lot to lock down different customer bases and lock them in. That's what economists call industrial structure. You want to know, are the big companies going to take all the, all the surplus or are the small companies going to grow to you know, do something new and replace them and will it be distributed? Dumb people will get replaced by AI and then smart, smart people have to race to stay ahead of AI. They're thinking of this substitutability. They're thinking of substitution. You know, and they're thinking that for smart people, it'll, you know, you're going to have to use your smarts to, to retain tiny little bits of edge over AI where you're competing. And then for dumb people, you're just screwed, go on UBI, whatever. Welcome to Econ 102, where economist Noah Smith and I make sense of what's happening in the news technology, business, and beyond through the lens of economics. Let's jump right in. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Econ 102. We are joined today with our first ever very special guest, Adam Nash. Adam, thanks for joining Noah and I today. Oh, I am beyond flattered to be here. Adam, we, we've been longtime uh, friends in the ecosystem, and, and you and Noah have been longtime debaters uh, on, on, on many interesting topics. So when we wanted to talk about this AI piece, um, that, that Noah put out recently or, or that we thought we wanted to bring you on and, and talk about it. And we also want to get into Daffy, uh, which we're excited to partner with as well. Why don't we start, Noah, why, why don't you talk about the argument that you made and then, then we'll get into it. Uh, well, first, before we talk about that, I just want to mention how Adam and I became friends, uh, which is that I, I don't remember whether I tweeted something or wrote it on Bloomberg. This was a very long time ago, 2014, I think. And then Adam randomly called me up because my number was publicly listed, um, you know, because I was a professor at the time, Adam randomly called me up and wanted to debate uh, about some of these things. And we had a nice conversation. And I think I actually skipped a meeting to do this. And then, and then we talked to each other on Twitter and then uh, have, been, have been friends ever since. But anyway, so this is a long tradition, but all right, onto the AI thing. So, so basically people are starting to do experiments with uh, you know, AI and, and productivity. So Eric Brynjolfsson, we all know he did some of these, um, but there have been five or six so far that have been done. <clears throat> I, and um, all of them have shown the exact same thing, which is AI is a big productivity boost for the low productivity people and a modest to zero productivity boost for the high productivity people <clears throat> on a variety of tasks. So you have essay writing, call centers, coding and uh, you know business writing and just a number of other kind of tests that you think uh and they, and they usually use gpt4 is the the thing they test um occasionally something else but uh but usually gpt4 and they find that the lowest performers get get boosted while the top performers get either a very small boost or no boost at all and so this made me really think you know since i've been a kid we've sort of seen nerds you know like us uh, get increasing returns. You know, when 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 I was a kid, there was still a little bit of nerds getting, um, you know, being second class in society. The idea that nerds would just go in the basement and do something technical while the back slapping bros went and made all the deals, you know, on the top floor of the of the building, and got all the money. Um, and so that was still kind of the way people imagine the economy being. It was already in transition, but but that was still a stereotype. And I feel like by um by now you know by the 2010s things had completely inverted nerds are the masters of the universe you know you have to yes you still have to know how to make deals and slap backs but you also now have to know how to code or what you know what technical things mean and and it's people from nerdy backgrounds who are getting all the money and so i thought you know it was really the age of the nerd and you can see the college wage premium just explode in the in the 80s and then sort of uh, creep up in the 90s 
um, and, and, and 2000s. And so um, human capital had this increasing return to it. it. It may, you know, and I think this went along with a, a general shift in America's position in the world. Uh, you know, we, we went from being the world's factory where we made all the cars and the steel and the aluminum and all that stuff. We went from being that to being the world's um, research park where we wrote the software and, and did the bio research and, you know, did the finance stuff. And, and we did all the, uh, the knowledge industries. And I think that that big change has reverberated throughout our society in many ways. And one of the main ways is that, you know, um, working as just an engineer for a large tech company, you now get paid hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars, uh, you know, while a, a regular, a regular worker is still getting paid, you know, $50,000 a year, $40,000 a year to just do a regular job. Um, the, the, the people with the knowledge at the, at the top of the skill distribution have just done so much better. When I looked at those results from AI, I thought maybe this is the, this is one thing that could help reverse this, you know, maybe AI will let, random, you know, no, people with very average skills who don't win hackathons learn to code well enough to actually get software engineering jobs. Of course, that's going to drive down the overall return uh, because you have an increase in supply. But maybe um, it will, you know, just like mechanized, uh, you know, um, um, garment making machines in the Industrial Revolution helped regular people do, be able to sew things and weave things as well as the masters, maybe that's coming for AI. And maybe the age where human capital was absolutely everything is going to wane a little bit or shrink a little bit. And nerds aren't going to rule the universe quite so much as, as we have uh, for the last 30 years. As usual, Noah, you make a compelling case. Um, and, uh, you know, going back to our, our origins or our discussions back and forth, um, I'm definitely the slightly more crazy one here compared to Noah, because his, what combines is, you know, when he writes pieces and he writes a lot, it turns out I agree with quite a few of them, but sometimes I have questions, issues, ideas, and sometimes debate. His patience for Twitter DMs, man, is just unreal. Um, you know, this piece I thought was really fascinating for me because I spent a lot of time thinking about this. You know, my first love in school, I was in computer science, but I ended up focusing on human computer interaction which is kind of all about what I think of are the irrational, emotional kind of perceptive ways that humans interact with technology versus the technology itself, which tends to be ones and zeros and very rational. And because of my love of economics and kind of finance, that's always overlaid. Well, how does this play out in the economy? So I find these topics really interesting and they, they get into my work. So when I read this piece, I thought part of it was very correct on two dimensions. It got me thinking, you know, one was we have all these industries right, all these areas, which we tend to label as low-skilled or unskilled. By the way, I don't think that label is, is accurate or the right way to think of things, but we have all these industries uh, that have actually defied a lot of productivity boost with this recent IT boom, right? Like there hasn't been as much productivity. There's actually been a slowdown on the overall numbers. And so you got me thinking, well, maybe AI is actually a thing we've been missing is that, you know, there's been intermediaries needed between people who aren't as comfortable with technology, not don't have as much of a a growth mindset about using technology jobs, like doing things the way they do them. And maybe AI could be the thing that breaks through, maybe not for everyone or every industry, but in a lot of verticals that we haven't seen it before. The other thing I, I thought that was very true is that, you know, despite Silicon Valley mindset around engineering and software, we all talk about, you know, how much is that Netflix person making working on AI or, you know, those Google, you know, Google stock units. The truth is, is that actually the data on computer science in general and, and programming um, even going back to when I was in school, I remember one of my good friends, we had a debate when I was just early and it was a classic debate between CS and electrical engineering. And at the time I went to school, electrical engineering paid more. And everyone said, well, of course, electrical engineering pays more. It's IEEE accredited. Why would you pay for something like computer science? Is that even really engineering? This was like Stanford talk in the early nineties. Um, and so, but the truth is, if you were a VB programmer in, in, in the bowels of a Fortune 500 company, you weren't actually making a huge amount. Um, you weren't making stock. And so I think that tends to get overstated by these sensationalists. A lot of our discourse lately has been very much not even just on the 1%, but kind of the 0.1% of kind of outcomes. And I think that distorts things. The only problem I had with the piece, and it, you know, when I was thinking about it, was really um, it's our definition of skilled and unskilled. Um, using proxies like college educated, how much college they went through. There's a lot of data that the government collects and we use the data as economists and, and finds because it's available. 
And it's been standardized and we've been doing it for a while. But at least in my career, um, I haven't found that there's a great overlap between those definitions and what leads people to be successful with technology. And it, that's always bothered me. I mean, these are all correlated. So I'm sure over large data sets, we could have an argument about maybe it's the same thing. But you know, we you hear these words in, in Silicon Valley, a growth mindset, this idea of learning new technology, asking the question of how this can help you do better with it. It's, it's somewhat of a progressive idea in some ways. It's somewhat of a growth idea in some ways, but it fights the conservatism of, no, no, we've always done it this way. Keep doing it this way. This is how to make something of the highest quality. And so across different industries and verticals, you can find people who have a growth mindset, right? Like I've worked with amazing stonemasons who actually are always thinking about better ways that they could lay a path or better way, you know, carpenters who better ways they can do things with wood, et cetera, and they embrace tools. I think that across verticals, traditional unskilled industries are actually filled with people who have a growth mindset, who will embrace technology. I think you're going to find some people who fight it, who don't embrace the new technology and new platforms, new ways of doing things. Now, obviously I'm very bullish about AI. I think the people who embrace the new technology and figure out how we can do things at a hundredth the cost or a hundredth the time that we were able to do before will inevitably outcompete and build businesses and products that are not only better than what we have now, but actually they will do things that aren't even economically possible right now. So the biggest problem I had with the, the thesis was just more around the definition of skilled and unskilled. But like I said, it might come out in the averages, but you know, I'm already seeing it like on my team at Daffy. Our CTO did a full walkthrough. Actually, we have a deal. Um, as it turns out, OpenAI is a, a, you know, uses Daffy uh, internally. Um, you know, so we've had a bit of a front row seat to, to some of these innovations. But I'll tell you, the engineers I see embracing AI do phenomenal work and they do it faster with higher quality. The writers who embrace it, the designers who embrace it um, do phenomenal work. So I'm very bullish about it in general. I just, I'm not sure it's as simple as unskilled versus skilled. Well, I mean, I think that when we're talking about the real world, obviously it's going to be more complex. You know, when, when we talk about those experiments that people have done, to get those, you know, to get interpretable results, they had to define skill in a narrow way, but they didn't define it by education. They didn't say, you know, which of our, which of our test subjects has a degree, you know, they all had degrees. Um, uh, you often, you know, sometimes they're all at the same college even, but um, they, they measured their initial skill on a task. So they would have them write some code, see how, you know, evaluate how good the code was, uh, and then uh, have them write code with, um, you know, um, uh, GitHub Copilot in that case. And so then see how well they did with GitHub Copilot. So you had, it was very narrowly defined skill on a task. And I think that you're right that in the real world, skill is very broad. There's, you know, you could call entrepreneurialism a skill, uh, you know, work ethic, um, self-improvement, self-starting. These are all skills that we talk about and that are written on motivational posters, but that we don't have a good way to define for research purposes very clearly. And I think you're absolutely right that in the real world that matters. And these, you know, these experiments are just like toy, toy experiments in a lab. So it doesn't necessarily translate. Um, but at the same time, I think that getting better on specific skills, you can, uh, you can certainly have bottlenecks. So someone in the tech world who can do everything except code well may be held back by that bottleneck in their skill set. And, you know, of course, the, the typical response is growth mindset, spend years fixing the bottleneck, spend nights and weekends fixing the bottleneck in your skill set. And maybe you can do that, um, but it takes time. And, you know, you're, you're, there's an opportunity cost to doing that. Now, maybe you have this amazing machine tool, you know, like you have this tool and you can just load it up and use uh, GitHub Copilot to go from a, 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 you know, mediocre coder to a decent coder overnight. Uh, and now that bottleneck in your, in your skill set is, is fixed. So if you know, you, you're running a company and you need to like write a little bit of the code yourself, cause you don't have someone to do it right now, it's not going to suck and it's not going to fail, you know, because you have the copilot to help you. And I just made that example up, but I'm thinking that when you have a, you know, but, but of course, you know, AI helps with much, much more than just coding. So if you have, um, you know, a, a tool, a general purpose tool like AI that can fix all those little bottlenecks in your skill set. Maybe people who, uh, you know, would have been mediocre will now go to decent or great along a, a wide spectrum of, of skills in the real world. Yeah. And, and I think that's a fair point. And this is not new for technology platforms. People at the highest end of skills, like take my co-founder at Daffy, 
one of my favorite engineers, most talented, probably won more hack days at LinkedIn than any other person, Alejandro Crosa. Don't recruit him. He's, he's busy. Oh, no, no, no. We just want to give him a shout out. For example, we deal with Daffy with a lot of government data, a lot of regulated data, which tends to not be on the cutting edge of technology. So recently we had to rip through some IRS data that I think was in some older format of XML, right? 20 years kind of old, like I'm sure it was cutting edge at some point. Um, he could do it. Um, it's draining for him. It takes him away from a lot high value tasks, but it turned out the combination of something like Copilot and letting you know AI kind of take a crack at things and then finishing up, he would describe it as something that normally would have taken him a few days to do, he was able to do in a day, right? And I've heard designers say the same thing where they were building out a whole brand expression, et cetera, that normally would have taken them a couple of weeks, but they were able to do it in hours. But I think you're fundamentally right. I think there's more room for improvement for those people who, who are missing skills, right? And we have 50 years of analytics software promising that business users who aren't good with data, who can't program, who didn't take advanced statistics could actually make sense of the data coming back in business. But um, the thing that I, I have a slight calm about is like when we talk about things like inequality or kind of the, the tertiary, it's not just about the median or talking about the, the high end, right? They're these different, like they're different percentiles, right? So the, the truly exceptional folks at the high end, that tends to come from a lot of creativity. What can you do with this technology, right? There's a big difference. Economists tend to look at productivity as like, here's a task, can we do this faster, cheaper, better? Um, that's different than inventing new tasks and new systems and new platforms and ecosystems. Now, eventually they have to converge, right? The, all these things have to go to human needs and things that we build and do. But I'm not convinced yet which side of that equilibrium is going to get more benefit from AI. I still like what still bugs me in the back of my mind is these definitions of skills versus what I've seen in my career, which is some people embrace new technology and ask those questions and some people fight it. I have family members who are brilliant, who have advanced degrees, top of their field, but fight technology. I don't mean just the printer config thing because no one can still figure out how to configure printers. I don't know why, but, um, but I mean like, you know, resisting kind of new ways of doing things, new technology, new, new ways of running their business. They like the way they run it. You see this in a lot of existing businesses. I mean, a lot of the opportunity in tech that I love exists because of that. Right. The optimization of what exists versus reimagining from the ground up what could be. Um, and I'm not convinced that AI changes that equation completely. Well, I mean, we'll see. Most of the people that you talk to about AI's uh, impact on job markets are talking about replacement. They're talking about, you know, um, dumb people will get replaced by AI and then smart, smart people have to race to stay ahead of AI. They're thinking of this substitutability. They're thinking of substitution, you know, and they're thinking that for smart people, it'll, you know, you're going to have to use your smarts to, to retain tiny little bits of edge over AI where you're competing. And then for dumb people, you're just screwed going UBI, whatever uh, with you. And I just think that um, that's, that's the perspective that I think that these, these econ results uh, mitigate against and that, you know, and history too, you know, because when we, when we look at history, We've seen this again and again, this fear of, of human replacement um, that seemed to be validated when a few high-skilled technical occupations like, you know, seamstress or master weaver got essentially devalued by new waves of innovation. Um, you know, telephone operators, where are they? Uh, but then, so, so technology did replace specific occupations. Uh, and so we've had these waves and waves of fear about about machines replacing human beings since we started using machines and if you you know from from the original luddites who were just like pissed off uh weaving workers to um you know even in the post-war years when unions were strong and the growth was very well balanced you know and and inequality was low and all these things right and um people were terrified that new machine tools new industrial technology would, would mass replace humans. You can find stories in the New York Times about this. And so that perspective has never really gone away. And, and there's this idea that this time is different, that this time we've invented a machine that replaces humans instead of a tool that complements them. And that may be true because I can never say it's not true, right? To say it's not true is to just make prophecies that I can't support uh, because no one really knows. 
right? Maybe this time we've invented the people replacer, which we never did before. But um, these these the little experiments that I'm seeing are very encouraging because um, they don't look because the in these narrow narrow tasks narrow situations it doesn't look like a people replacer. And if it's not a people replacer in narrow tasks, how the heck is it going to be a people replacer for whole jobs? And so, so I just don't see it. You know, I, I think cyborgs, humans working closely with tools have beaten the alternatives of just natural unaided human skill and of pure capital, you know, use with no human input again and again, cyborgs have just won again and again. A human using a machine tool can manufacture just really, really well, um, you know. And uh, and and we've seen this um, again and again. I and now we're seeing it in these little narrow econ experiments too. And so I'm saying I just don't think that this is the moment when we switch from uh, from benefiting humans as a tool, from upskilling and upgrading humans with tools to replacing humans and turning humans into essentially, you know, useless dross or horses to be sent to the slaughter for dog food. I don't think we're at that point. No, and you and I are, are very aligned on this and agree. I come to it from a, from a slightly different angle, but, um, you know, Andy McAfee was actually one of my professors in business school and, you know, oh, he's really? worked with Eric. Yeah, yeah. It, it just turned out that he oh, ended wow. up going down this direction. Yeah, he taught operations. So I credit him with anything I do know about real physical operations. And also that was tougher for me than kind of the virtual world, as it turns out. Who knew that cranberry case? Man, you know, cranberry so difficult. Anyway, um, I haven't studied everything, but I've studied multiple disciplines. And sometimes you see different lenses on the same problem. And, and sometimes there's reassurance when you see the same, see different lenses leading you down the same path, right? You know, philosophy, it can be politics, it can be economics, it can be technology. But I agree with you, like the basic fundamentals of productivity, if we take the economic lens, always leads to fewer people being able to do the same thing, right? Like what used to take a thousand people, if you compound whatever percentage over a period of time, it'll go from a thousand people to 990 to 950 to 900. And it turns out that curve keeps going as long as you believe you can increase productivity. We could talk about who captures that value. They are now more valuable. And actually that entire vertical, that industry, because we, we live in a competitive economy, right? Those people could be doing something else by it being more productive, it actually makes that area more competitive, right? The fact that designers can do more actually raises the value of designers, even if you don't need any, as many designers on any particular job. And that economic competition tends to lead to getting more, not less of those things. So you might have factories might not take 2000 people, they might take hundreds, but you get more factories and you get them in more areas and more verticals where they may not have made sense before. So. Listen, I think a lot of smart people debate this back and forth, but um, I'm definitely in the camp that sees AI as a productivity tool, first and foremost. I don't see it as eliminating people. I do think that there is a, and I've seen this in many ways in my career, as short or long as you think it is, um, where you know the people who embrace the new technology and find ways to either solve problems that weren't economically solvable before, or go after valuable problems in a way that's a tenth the price or 10 times the speed, there is gonna be a short-term advantage for the people who push in that drive. I'm already seeing it. I mean, just think of translation alone. Think about like, when I work with contractors, sometimes there's a language barrier, right? And, and the person who can speak to the customer in their native language actually does better. I have a good friend actually who speaks fluent Chinese and Spanish. And so it turns out in California, that is you know, a very valuable skill set to have. Um, and as a result, he can talk to customers and, and do deals that other people can't. What if that friction goes away? What does that mean? Maybe there's other skills that dominate. Maybe the, the speed you do the project, the quality you do the project, all these other things. So I think people underestimate people in different verticals in general, especially in Silicon Valley. There's such an overemphasis, I think, on software and particularly the slice of software that we do in venture-backed startups. Um, one of the things I like about your pieces, Noah, and, and you know, talking about the economy in general, is you realize that that's not the biggest piece of the economy. That's not where most people work. It's not how most people make their money. It's not core to most people's lives. Um, and I'm very bullish on technology. There are very few who are more bullish than I am. There's a few, but not, not many. Um, but you know, when I look at AI, I still see people looking at it through a very, very narrow lens. That's well said. 
we've been talking about one of the main concerns that people who are concerned about AI have, which is, hey, you know, what's it going to do for for labor? Just to list out the other concerns, you know, um, some people are worried that it's going to uh, that other humans are going to use AI in, in very dangerous ways, um, putting aside any sort of you know su supernatural um, you know concerns. Um, and other people are worried that AI is going to spread all sorts of misinformation or say very mean things or harmful things towards towards vulnerable populations. This is kind of the AI ethics community. And then there are other groups of people who more like the Yudkowsky types um, who are worried that no, actually this could mean sort of. Uh, you know, game over for for humans on on some timeline if we keep up the 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 the, the rate. And so, yeah, just to list out, there are different groups of people that have different kinds of concerns with AI. Some some stemming uh, sort of short term, and some you know existential. Listen, um, unfortunately, some of the logic that Noah put forward actually cuts both ways. If you believe in the cyborgs, if you believe that this isn't about human replacement, it's actually about amplifying skills and capabilities. Unfortunately, that cuts both ways, good and bad, right? You know, I mean, it's not like humans have don't have a track record of using technology to to do violent things, bad things, you know, uh, in a number of ways. So I, I think it'd be foolish. I, I'm actually grateful that there are people thinking about debating it, going down those paths. I think it's important. Um, where I get nervous about that, though, like I said, is also the track record for technology has been fairly good overall. Right. All, 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 all of those pains, all of those issues, you know, when you start doing the debate of what world would you trade that for? It's actually a, a very hard debate to have, given the progress that we've made in a number of different areas, very real progress for people. So I really feel strongly um, that while I do think there will be bad uses, and I have no doubt that there are all sorts of people trying to use this for advantage in whatever they do for a living, politics, inter, you know, between nation states, all these other things, um, the benefits of it really could be phenomenal. I mean, benefits at an individual level, I mean, benefits at a, a small social level, at, at a global level. And so my only concern there is that we don't accidentally throttle the technology in some unpredictable way. One of the hardest things about new technologies is that most of the great ideas about how you can use the technology aren't, don't usually come top down. I mean, smart people are smart and, and theorists are smart, et cetera. But, but there is a reason in the end why, you know, consultants don't rule the world in terms of defining all the new technology. It's not for lack of IQ or, or education or capability or any of these things. I, I, these people are brilliant people. It turns out that actually a lot of technology progression is people working from basic building blocks um, to solve a very specific problem and then discovering that that problem is bigger than they thought or if applied to other areas, you have interdisciplinary areas and kind of spreads out from there. So I tend to be nervous when the debate gets too close to let's lock everything down and not move forward, which we've heard from a few people. When we just go deeper on Daffy for a second, because we just talked about AI. I know you're excited about lots of other sort of emerging technology um, spaces as well, deep in fintech. How, how did you get conviction that, that out of all the things you could spend time on, Daffy is, the, is, is uh, you know, the biggest opportunity and, and most important thing for you to do? Well, well I, am a, I am a founder. So founders have some liabilities to them. And one is a little bit of hubris of that. I believe that this problem is difficult enough and important enough that it's worth solving, but I don't have confidence that it would get solved otherwise if we didn't build an organization to do it. Um, and I, I will fully admit, but um, no, a lot of this is evolution for me. A lot of my career in technology has been riding this wave, this frontier of where can technology make a meaningful difference um, and just riding it across different verticals, right? I you know, started my career at Apple, uh, did a startup in electronic software distribution, um, worked at eBay, Web 1.0 days, then LinkedIn. And then about 10, more than 10 years ago, joined, there was a category that I was always passionate about, which is finance. And I really thought that technology had gotten to the point, business models, organizations, that we could build businesses helping people with money. We now call that fintech. And of course, I ended up joining Wealthfront and running that for four years. Um, and I've been on the board of Acorns for a number of years. And it just really impacted me that Acorns now helps millions of people, very ordinary people, save money, right? Like just basic behavioral prompts, et cetera, making it very easy, save your spare change, et cetera, so that a person doesn't end up at the end of the month with nothing, they actually end up, or less than nothing, they end up with a few hundred dollars that they didn't know they had. And that makes an immense difference to them. And I really felt like we hadn't applied that 
to the giving space. And yet giving is a huge category. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, measuring with GDP is a little funky, but I mean, it's about a half a trillion a year. Like it's roughly 2% of GDP by some measures. Um, it's a really big area, but where is the big technology platforms that are enabling it? I talked to dozens of people across the country about how they give. And what I discovered is a very common thread. So the bad news is, it turns out if you ask Americans how much people should give to charity every year, you ask 20 people, you'll, you're lucky if you only get 20 answers, right? Like you just get, everyone has a different opinion. Some people use percentages, some people use numbers. Some people, it's very much like, well, if you have a good year, it's kind of like tipping the dealer. Like you, you give back in the good years, but some years are tough and you don't give those years. Everyone has a different frame. But one thing that was very common was that almost everyone believed in giving. And when I asked people how much they thought people should give, whatever number they give, whatever frame they give, when you ask them, well, how much did you give last year? There was a really, there was a pregnant pause there. People are not, don't feel good because they're busy. They're busy with life. They have family, they have social life, they have work, they have all these things. And giving is, is sitting there as something they care about, but on any given day, isn't the thing they do. Um, and so they end up at the end of the year going like, oh, I didn't give as much as I wanted to. And so that actually became passionate. It turns out there is some research that suggests that just setting a goal, almost like any financial goal, that if you set a goal for your giving and automate it, you give more. Actually, the, the, the research that you know, we quote says 32% more. Um, and I thought, wow, that's a really big number, right? Americans are already very generous. Individuals, not foundations, not big corporations. Individuals give more than $300 billion a year to charity in the U.S. What if that was 32% bigger? I know that's crazy, like the idea that we could get to everyone, et cetera. But that's really what marshaled me around this idea. That's how Daffy, you know, the original MVP was born. We raised money at the end of 2020. This is in the pandemic, by the way, right? So all remote life, but raised the money in December 2020 built the team, got all the regulatory approvals. We went with a donor advised fund because that's the right regulatory structure in the US for a charity account. It's tax free, um, launched the product. And um, it's been amazingly rewarding to see what real people do with it. I mean, we, we do have wealthy people who are putting millions of dollars into accounts and give very large donations to causes they believe in. We also have people who put aside $10 a week, $25 a month, because they give a few hundred dollars a year to a few organizations every year and it's meaningful to them. They, they care about it. We have people tithing. Um, we had one member who decided for Ramadan, they wanted to give to a different Islamic charity every day of Ramadan. They contributed crypto to do it. And then of course, those charities can't handle crypto, but we can, we can do that. We have brilliant technologists who handle all this stuff. And so um, it's been wonderful, very human stories. Um, and so that's a lot of what we're doing at Daffy every day is trying to just make it easier to give. That's, a, that's an inspiring vision. Adam, let, let's get into the macro um, situation in terms of one, what does the tech downturn mean? And then let's talk about, hey, how long do you think this, this is going to last? Like, wh what are your predictions as to wh what's to expect? I was thinking about this. In, in some ways, this is like the fourth tech downturn I've been through. Um, I'm counting the one that happened when I was in college, right? So when I started it at Stanford, it was 1991. In 1992, something, I mean, I grew up in Silicon Valley, so there's certain Every area, geography has their own myths and legends, et cetera. And you have to understand that Hewlett Packard was one of those myths and legends that built Silicon Valley, right? It, 1930s engineers, a Stanford professor gives them a little money in a garage and they build out this empire. And part of what made Hewlett Packard Hewlett Packard was, was the HP way, right? And part of that was not laying people off. It was this, light, this commitment to, to the team and, and working. And in 92, um, Hewlett Packard did huge layoffs, right? The downturn, some of it was, it was just macro driven, right? Like the Cold War ended, defense budgets went down, a bunch of things happened. But the end result was, it was not at all clear in the early 90s that tech was a good place to go, right? There were a lot of people who were not optimistic. Um, this is pre Windows 95, this is pre the internet boom. And so what I remember early at Stanford was people being very negative on the idea of going out into tech. Not everyone, there are plenty of people positive, but you know, enrollments dropped in the, in the CS majors. And within a few years, it turned around. I mean, we've seen the bubble burst around 2000, of course, that was very dramatic. Um, I happened to have been in venture capital towards the tail end of that and saw what that did. Obviously we had the financial crisis 2007 through 2009. Um, and so this is the fourth one. So, I mean, the short answer is it's not gonna be quick. I think there's some people who just, we, 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 you know, it's the dopamine hits. We've just gotten too into things happening so quickly and so fast. And it turns out 
the economy is big. All these areas are big now. A lot of these different areas, it takes time for companies to work through these systems. So I think that people looking for kind of a quick snapback and boom are, are going to be disappointed. But that being said, I, I'm very bullish on what I see. I, I continue to see huge areas for technology improvement. That productivity ramp is nowhere near close to its end game. Um, we are now solving problems in sectors that we had a real problem solving for most of my lifetime. I mean, and this is not just software. I mean, in deep tech, the things that are happening around space and a number of different areas are really phenomenal. Um, and for someone who's a, my first internship was actually at NASA, believe it or not. Um, and so someone who had a lifelong love of space. Um, yeah, no, it was, I, it was NASA Ames. I was 15. Oh, wow. I couldn't That's even awesome. drive. My mom dropped me off. Actually, I remember her dropping them off one day. And instead of the happy fun security guards, there were four guys with, with guns. And it turned out that the first Persian Gulf War had just started. And because at that time, NASA Ames was next to the Air Force Base because they hadn't closed the Air Force Base, Moffett Field. Um, it turned out they took security a little bit more seriously. But, um, but anyway, um, yeah, so I, I'm very bullish. I don't think some of it's going to be very mundane. Right. I think that there's a lot of areas for products and services that already exist to be improved in a lot of different ways. And I think that engine has not finished moving through the economy or moving through people. Um, but I am very bullish about things like AI. The one issue I have with AI in terms of the boom is that at least so far, I haven't heard a great answer for how AI will revolutionize dis uh, distribution. Of what? So usually for technology companies, especially venture backed startups, you have two problems you have to solve. One is the better mousetrap, like, oh, with this new technology, I can solve that old problem much cheaper, much faster, much better in a different way than it was done before. But then there's this other problem, which is a business problem, um, which is, well, eventually the big companies will get the innovation as well. And so there's a little bit of a race in terms of distribution of how you can reach customers. And actually big companies do a lot to lock down different customer bases and lock them in. That's what economists call industrial structure. You wanna know, are the big companies gonna take all the, all the surplus or are the small companies gonna grow to you know, do something new and replace them and will it be distributed? Well, so that's, that's part of the debate. And I, Clay Christensen was one of my advisors at business school. He, he's passed away, but he was such a great thinker. Um, and he really influenced me. I did some projects with him. So I'm, I'm, I'm biased towards disruptive thinking, et cetera, on why big companies who are filled with smart people have so much in terms of resources and distribution reach. How do they keep losing some of these fights? Um, and I liked disruption theory. It's not perfect, but I think it does explain of what goes on. Um, and so what happened with the last two booms is you had real changes in distribution. The internet let companies, software, reach customers in a way that they could not before directly, right? Like it used to be, like when I started, actually software distribution was very much about getting shelf space in places like CompUSA, where you had to pay a VIG to get stocked on this one. And by the way, they could only stock so many products. The internet had no limits. We figured out email, we figured out ads, we figured out all these different things. Mobile changed the entire equation because when you have a computer in your pocket, I mean, no, I don't know how many hours a day you spend in front of a computer, but most normal people only spent a fixed amount of time. Maybe if they worked in a job where they're at a computer it was more during the day. But for a lot of people, um, you know, they might look at a computer once or twice a day or for an hour here or there. The phone made it 24 seven effectively, which by the way, may not be good for any of us. Yeah, I know um, this is the, yeah. when, when you were talking about, you know, technology being positive, blah, blah, blah. The one technology that I'm kind of down on, um, you know, other than like, you know, crypto scams or whatever, but the one technology that I'm, I'm kind of down on is the idea of social media on a phone, that nexus of looking at social media all day and being on your phone and it taking you out of the real world, stopping you from having real world friends and causing you to get in these online fights all the time. Um, and I think that, that, you know, I just interviewed the psychologist, uh, Jean Twenge for my blog. Um, and you know, she's the proponent, she and Jonathan Haidt have been the proponents of this theory that smartphone enabled social media has caused this massive rise in depression in young people. And, uh, you know, not just depression either, but a whole lot of negative social indicators that really track smartphone social media usage pretty closely. Obviously a smartphone is a great tool for many things, but social me and social media was, you know, pretty fun when it was just on your laptop for a couple hours a day. But when you combine those things so that people get taken out of the real world and just get sucked into just, you know, checking Twitter, checking Instagram all day, every day. Um, maybe that does something bad. So that's, that's kind of my one foray into, into techno negativity. Techno pessimism is that I, I kind of buy this. 
Well, I mean, yeah, like I said, I, I tend to be a pragmatist about this, but it's not all positive. There are definitely negatives. And I, I definitely think, and by the way, I would add a third technology to that story. It's not just phones, which gave us 24 seven access to a device and social media. The truth is the internet gave birth to this because we had to solve problems around internet scale data, right? None of that would be possible without, I mean, I remember debates about how you would handle like terabytes of data, right? Gigabytes, petabytes. I mean, like the, the, these things now, I mean, it's like any college student can build backend systems that literally handle internet scale data. It's amazing. And so the combination of all these technologies came together, I think. And I think there are some real issues to track. Once again, I'm not sure I would trade off like none of the issues I've seen said that like the Luddite position would be correct. We should not have allowed phones or anything like that. I think you have to roll forward. You have to go to the future knowing that we cannot predict everything. We cannot figure out everything ahead of time. You run into problems and then you apply your intelligence and capability to solving those problems. And so I think that there are very smart people working on these issues. I do worry that the length of time to solve these problems is not immediate and it's impacting real people. And so there's always that push of like, well, what do you do in the interim? Like, how do we help people as much as we can? And, and there's a bunch of other dynamics outside technology that make this hard as well. But, um, but getting back to the AI thing and, and distribution of the tech boom, I do think it's fair to argue about where does the AI benefit land? Because without a new distribution platform, startups basically have to go toe to toe and they still do it by the way. Enterprise startups have year after year, decade after decade, found ways to go to global 2000 companies and convince them that they can solve a problem that matters to them economically 10 times better than their installed solution and actually get traction in the market. You can do it. It is hard. Um, it's much, much easier when you have a platform transition on distribution, right? So the length of time, it takes all those smart marketing people at those big global 2000 companies to adapt to mobile advertising is a window of five to seven years, which we know in the venture based system can mean with Internet reach that you could get to a billion users before, um, you know, the big guys can wield the guns and then the fight becomes more even. Right. And so, I mean, this is like Reed Hoffman talks a lot about this with blitz scaling. Um, I don't think distribution is the only way to succeed as a venture backed startup. But let's be clear, a lot of venture-backed startups fail, not because their product wasn't great, not because the technology wasn't capable, but because they could not get that product solution to customers fast enough, both discovery and implementation, to get the economics moving fast enough where someone was willing to fund the next few years. I mean, I saw this when the bubble burst. There were so many great companies that died. 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004. Actually, many of them have been reincarnated in this last boom because they were fundamentally good ideas. Um, but the macro environment combined with kind of difficulty getting traction in that environment made it hard for them to get financed. So, you know, it's kind of, um, we, we could go on a long time about this and, and Eric's probably like, no, we must end the episode. <laughs> but like um, one interesting finance thing is is why the VC model has been so successful across multiple technology booms, um, and it wasn't always. You know, if you go back to the the you know um, booms of like 1920s, the funding structure doesn't look much like modern venture capital. Uh, there was funding, but it didn't look the same. Um, but then, but you you took this this funding model that was basically developed for semiconductor companies, and then adapted it to software. And that's really interesting because the same funding structure basically uh, worked really well for both of those. And I've been thinking about that. And, you know, it had for, for, for semiconductor companies, it worked because you know, the, the classic thing of venture capital is that you make 100 bets and 99 fail and one wins and it compensates for all the others. When you have a very, you know, sort of capital intensive thing, like you need to build a fab, it's obvious why that structure prevails. With software, it prevails for a completely different reason, which is the costs go really, really low, but now someone wins the space because, so it goes from fixed costs to what you, what exactly what you're talking about, distribution. So distribution became the reason why we VC funding is the best funding model for tech startups, um, you know, in the software age. I have some bias here because once again, you know, growing up in Silicon Valley, once again, my parents are both doctors. So I kind of think of myself as the first engineer in the family, but, um, you know, growing up in the value kind of internalize a lot of things. Um, I think that I'm not convinced that the venture model 
was preordained or would have necessarily happened. There's so many things that came together in Silicon Valley that it's not about starting the venture model. You can find examples of the venture model going back centuries if you want to. Um, I, I agree with you on the economics piece. The, the thing that I find in common between semiconductors and software and a lot of good venture backed business is they have this characteristic of there being a large fixed cost but phenomenal variable economics, unit margins, right? So this is going back to Microsoft days, but like that insight of like, well, it costs some money to build a software team, to build and develop this platform, but you can kind of squint your eyes and say that's kind of a fixed cost. Like software doesn't, famously doesn't scale very well in terms of people. And so this idea of like, well, if you get this team together and fund them for a certain amount of time, that then they will produce something where every incremental unit they sell, 90 plus percent of that drops to the bottom line, if you can grow that big enough, that's a good story. And that, that, that plays out really well. So I do see a lack of commonality, but things that are a little softer that I see in the Silicon Valley ecosystem, that I do worry about as things evolve. And each one of these iterations, boom, bust, I always worry about losing it, are things that weren't necessarily written, like the tax law changes that allowed money to flow from things like endowments and pension funds, et cetera, all these different changes into venture funds. Mm. Those, those people were not gonna give money to a 24 year old engineer to build a new software product like that. That wasn't going to happen necessarily. I think the the fact that California ended up in this very open labor market um, where, you know, they, they got rid of non-compete agreements where like that engineer or someone who learned at this one company how to build a venture back startup could actually go and do another one. Even one that competed with the original was not foreordained. There's very smart people who still are arguing against that change, despite the fact that you'd think 50 years of Silicon Valley might be a data point in its favor, but whatever. Um, so, I mean, I look at all these things. I mean, when I was at, you know, in business school, of course, in Boston, there's a huge debate, like why not Route 128? Like what happened there? Like how did Silicon Valley take over and do this thing? But um, I also see software things. Look at me as an angel investor. I'm now an angel investor in over 130 companies. Is that purely rational? Why do I spend time with founders? I don't even fund them. And I talk to them about their business. I learn, I give them information. I talk to them about what we did, what worked, what didn't work, et cetera. There's so much information transfer kind of clustering effect in the Valley, but I don't even take that for granted. Like there are subcultures in different cities. I've been around the world. I like to support entrepreneurship wherever I can. It's very unusual to have an atmosphere where people are willing to meet and talk to each other. First of all, you have to find a, a subculture where people even want to talk about these things, right? Like it turns out most normal people don't talk about technology startups all the time and, and, and economics. What? And yeah, I know it's true. Yeah. A lot of Eric, normal people true? don't do this. They, they might be happier. I'm just going to say they might be happier <laughs> people also. Um, but um, this, this subculture, like even like I look at startups, I look at startup pitch decks all the time. And what do I see on a lot of them? Advisors. And you find out that they gave shares to those advisors. They paid them money. Um, and that's very normal in most places. In Silicon Valley, it's the opposite system. If I like a company, I give them money, right? I invest as an angel, and then I spend time and give them advice. So not only am I not charging them for it, um, and by the way, to your point, most of those startups go to zero, right? They mostly don't work out, especially for angel investors. Angels do not have the protections that a lot of professional VCs do. And yet, the economics do work out because those outliers, those, those exceptional outcomes are possible. I was always fascinated with most of the world of economics are really small numbers, right? In fact, like in, in my personal finance class, it's so hard to convince young people that like a single digit return is actually good, right? Like, like you know, that, that will compound over time. It might be the difference for their retirement, might be a difference for their success. Um, and in some of these businesses, right, like it is just phenomenal. Right. And I don't mean Apple being a multi-trillion dollar company or that sort of thing. But like, I mean, look at recent stories. You can go to the first bubble era. You can go to Web 1.0, Web 2.0. Even more recently, I mean, one of the things, Noah, you and I have debated about over DMs, of course, is um, I'm fascinated now that people actually talk about building $10 billion companies or $50 billion companies as if that's possible. And they talk about it uh, being possible because it keeps happening. I mean, it used to be very recently, 15 years ago even going for a billion dollar outcome. I mean, when I was at LinkedIn recruiting people, I spent a lot of time recruiting people to LinkedIn. It was one of my core responsibilities when I joined. And I will tell you, convincing anyone that LinkedIn would even be worth a billion dollars was almost impossible. I mean, the entire global recruiting software market was like 4 billion at the time. Like there was no way to convince them. 
I think, by the way, LinkedIn just did 15 billion in revenue last year. I, I don't want to get that number wrong, but um, the fact that you can build new businesses that get to that scale and not not some scale where they're they're catering to a few rich people or kind of pools of capital. I mean, LinkedIn has more than half a billion users, right? Like they're. I, I know that a lot of people like to make fun of different things, but I will tell you, they've added a lot of value to a lot of people at very important times in their life. And so I just, you know, I'm very bullish about that in general and, and that ecosystem, but it's messy. Um, and you have to be okay with the fact that you can do all it's, it's almost statistical in some ways. Um, but there is a, there are some things in it that are not statistical. It's not all random chance, right? When people talk about these mindsets, they talk about these approaches of growth, how to build software, how to build teams, companies, that venture ecosystem still has a lot of strange oral tradition to it. Um, I think in the last 10 years, we've gotten a lot better about writing about it. I think Y Combinator has done a lot of very good things institutionalizing some of it. Um, but I still see, I mean, some of the value I provide to the founders I work with is just translating what they're trying to build into the mindset that venture capitalists have. Because I've worked for a couple of venture capital firms. I know what that mindset is. And it turns out there's value there too. So I don't know how you make that ecosystem stable or consistent, um, but it has been durable. 50 years is not nothing. It's a, that's a long time for an economic system to not only exist, but actually to outperform at the level it has. Well said, we, we can talk forever, but uh, we, we can't today. <laughs> um, Adam, uh, thanks so much for being our first ever special guest. And uh, we're stoked with what you're building with Daffy and excited for our, our listeners to, to check it out. So we'll put all the relevant links in, in the show notes and highly recommend f folks do. Uh, Adam, thanks so much. No, no, thank you for having me. It was a real treat. And I, uh, I, hope, I hope I did justice to the debate, Noah. I always... Uh... <laughs> we're, we'll always have more. <laughs> we'll always <laughs> have more. I'll Amen. see you in the DMs. <laughs> Econ 102 is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen, In the Arena, The Cognitive Revolution, and more. If you like what you hear, subscribe and leave us a review in the App Store. You can keep up with both of our Substacks for written analysis of the topics we cover in the show at noahopinion.substack.com and erictornberg.substack.com. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.